Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Let me tell you, this week um, is an interesting one as we're kind of winding down this series. We're going to culminate next week, uh, conclude next week on Easter, this seven-part series. And today we look at um, the one promise that most of us maybe just assume forget. And we've walked through these promises that Jesus has granted us as believers, the recognition that he's granted us life and friendship, the fact that he's, he's given us, you can read these, reward and acceptance. Today, if, if you can't tell, today, this, uh, this week, um, we look at the promise of, we explore the promise of trials. And as a believer, it may not be the most exciting thing. It's probably not the sales pitch, so to speak, that you use. Hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You should come to church with me. You'll experience trials. It's a lot of fun, right? Let me tell you, this box right here is actually indicative of the gift, uh, the, or the, the, the gift and the promise that this is. Uh, you probably can't see it from where you're sitting unless you come up and, ex- and, and look at it a little bit closer. This one's pretty beat up. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of activity that takes place throughout the week in this room. Um, there's kids in here. Club 56 meets in here on Sunday nights and they do their activity time. And there's like a big gaping hole here where I watched a dodgeball hit it and kind of shuddered a little bit early on. Uh, I saw this one get knocked off the platform. It's the only one. This, for, for whatever reason, this box has experienced literal trials. And the interesting thing about it is with the light on, it's still glowing. And I think that's a great metaphor specifically for where we're going to go today as we examine what it means to experience the promises that God gives us, particularly the promise of trials. I will tell you, I'm going to confess here for a moment, yesterday um, I learned something new, and I learned it through the context of trials. Anybody ever been there before? You learn something because of a trial you walked through. Let me just say, I'm still getting used to and getting to know this area. I know it's been almost three years now, which is, is hard to believe, but it's, it's interesting to note that I, I learned something new yesterday. I had some family joining me from out of town. They came to visit my, me and my family. Well, actually, it was grandparents, my, my parents, and so they didn't come to visit me. They came to visit their grandkids, right? And so they're in town, and we decided that we were going to go to lunch and I heard of a new place that was open uptown, which I hadn't been uptown for a while. It's, you know, I, I go into town in Athens uh, here and there, but I hadn't been uptown for a while. And actually, the last time I was uptown, I think, was literally summertime. And I thought to myself, oh, it's Saturday, uptown. Yeah, no problem, right? And so we, we got in our cars, and, and we had to drive two cars because of the amount of people that were there. We couldn't all fit in one. And we get in the car, and I tell my wife, Sheree, I said, honey, I'm not even going to look for a parking spot on the road. We're just going to go straight to the garage. And she's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, not even really thinking about what I said. And so we, we get on the road, and we start to make our way into town, and, and we get off on, on Stimson, and we start to weave through. And I notice a lot of people out walking, which isn't necessarily, uh, you know, that's not something that's not typical. But I notice a lot of those people were women, and they were a little older than college students. 
And so we're kind of driving around, uh, just kind of making our way to the garage. We finally get to the garage, and we have to wait for quite a bit of time. Let me tell you, when we left my house, it was 12 o'clock noon. And I am pretty regimented. I like to eat lunch at 12 o'clock noon. And so it's already time to eat. And I, I wasn't quite to hangry yet, but I was in the car, and we were on our way to eat, and that was the mission. <clears throat> As I looked up at the parking garage, I noticed that there was 13 spots available, and I thought, okay, I'm counting cars going in as they come in, and some coming out, I'm watching the spots bouncing around. When we entered, there was 12 spots available, and I'm telling you right now, this is gospel truth. There were 12 spots available. We get into the garage, and we hit level one, and okay, I almost never find anything on level one. Level two, rarely something on level two. Level three is when it starts to open up, usually when I'm there, and we get on level three, and it's full. And slowly we're going through and recognizing the fact that there is just a, a steady stream of cars that are coming down as well. And as we continue to climb further and further, I get to level four and five, which I've never been on before. And it is solid cars. And I think to myself, where are these 12 spots going to be? Because as we get closer and closer, there's less of an opportunity for us to park. And at this time, we're getting to a place where a spot might open up. And somebody who's five cars ahead thinks, I'm going to get that spot. So they're going to back through whoever's behind them and maneuver around in some giant vehicle that's never going to make it. And so there's, there's these kind of traffic jams that are happening in these tight little space. And eventually we get to the top and we see the sun while we're up there. We see no spots, and we start to make our way down. And my wife says to me, I'm going to go to the bottom right now. And out of the goodness of my heart, which isn't the phraseology she used, I'm going to tell people, don't come in. There's no spots. The, the sign is wrong. I said, just stay in the car. It's not a big deal. <laughs> I said, we've got to keep the flow going. If you tell people, they're going to turn around, and then we've got more people to wait on. It's just, but that will help them. I said, but it doesn't help us, right? <laughs> and so we're making, I'm giving you confession right now. I want you to know that. We're making our way back down, and as we're doing so, two or three times down, we're going around. These cars are buzzing around that are coming up to try to find a spot. They're still excited, right? They're still happy. Yeah, we're going to find them. I know that it's, there's no hope. And as they're coming around the corner, every time, I'm, I'm kind of having to slam on the brakes. And finally, I say, honey, can you watch and tell me when someone is coming? And I knew before I even got the whole sentence out. Shouldn't have said it. <laughs> Wasn't a good idea. So we keep going down and around, and at this point, we're, we're talking again, but we're going down and around. <laughs> we finally get to the bottom after sitting in there, and I looked at the clock, and it was 1237. That was a fun little detour. But wait, there's more. We turn out and get onto the main drag, and I said, oh, let's just go out to East State. We'll find something out there. And as we're making our way out there, we get around the corner, and I notice that there's a green light, but all the cars are sitting still. And let me tell you, 13 green lights in a row gets a little bit aggravating when you don't move, right? Finally, we make our way to East State, and as we're starting to go under the bridge, as we're starting to make our way into the bridge, I get a text from my mom and dad, and they say, hey, we've got a table, we're there. And, and immediately I thought, I should have put in the GPS, it would have told me to avoid this traffic. But then I thought, wow, what an amazing gift this is. As soon as we get there, we can sit down. And we did. And that is, so to speak, the end of the story. 
And I think about the different trials and different things that we go through in life and so excited to start. And and really today is the the celebration of the triumphal entry, the day when Jesus, he he comes into this final moment, this final environment to which all these passionate things are going to take place through his love and his his provision for humankind, for you and for me and for those that are there that day even. And as he walks through all these things, he walks through the celebration and then, and even in these moments with the disciples and then this trial time of, of that we're going to we're going to talk about we're going to really look at um, during specifically during the devotionals this week and then also during good friday and then finally as it all turns around there's this celebration of easter on the other end the resurrection of the king and as I, I think about the, the trials we walk through, whether they're kind of small in comparison, obviously, to what I just talked about, or maybe some of you have experienced real trials, the loss of a loved one or a spouse or something in your life that's been monumental, the trials we walk through, the specific things that we walk through, I can't help but realize, I can't help but think the reality that when we get to the end, as a believer, we experience this thing called resurrection with our King. And while the promise that we discussed today is trials, some of the hardships we're going to walk through, man, it's nice to know that we, number one, don't walk through those trials alone, but at the same time that at the end, the true promise, which I'm going to give you just a little bit of next week, is we get to experience the presence of God in joy forever. This season is one that's not just simply one where we, we touch on it and we move on. This is one today that, that we, we, number one, this, this day is kind of the first leg of the journey as we walk through. It's, it's Jesus' final, uh, you know, his walk into this place, this welcome to Holy Week type uh, moment. And, and here we, we recognize, even in the, in the liturgical Christian calendar, that, that this moment, this Holy Week moment occurs, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a season to which God intentionally planned for us to experience and to know what it's all about to experience rebirth or new birth. This week starts the celebration, and it starts with celebration and ends with sorrow. And as we walk through the, the passage today, it's not going to be the typical, to start with, it's not going to be the typical triumphal entry passage to begin with. I want us to recognize the, kind of the cycle, which is how life happens a lot of times, the cycle of how we walk through trials and we experience joy all in one. And at the same time, we're going to also start kind of in reverse. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We talked about in John chapter 15, we talked about how God wants us to be part of the vine. He wants us to to recognize that, that we as branches should be plugged into the king. And at the same time that God prunes us, he prunes you and I as believers as we attempt to try to be disciplined or become more like him. Follow me, he says, as, as I experience trials, or Paul says, as I experience trials, in the same way he's following Jesus. Now, John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18, we walk through this concept, this recognition that, hey, if you follow me, if you are a branch tied into the vine of Jesus, you will experience persecution from the world. So I'm going to read here, if you want to follow along uh, uh, on the screen, it'll be up there. You're going to follow along in, in your Bible, John chapter 15, starting in 18. It reads like this. If the world hates you, this is Jesus talking, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. And if I had not done, and if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. In, the, in their law, they hated me without reason. We're going to pause there. I want to look at this passage specifically because it raises a lot of questions. It raises some specific questions about basically who, and if you're following in your note guide, you'll see some of these, who the world or what the world is. What, what does it mean to be hated? Why are we hated if we are a believer in Jesus? And then one of the, the, the most clarifying questions there at the end is, what do we do with this? What do you and I do with the concept, the understanding that, hey, just by virtue of being a believer in Jesus, that there is going to be a, a, a resistance, a hate, a persecution towards my desire to want to love and to serve a God who has created all and who loves all and redeems all who believe. Verse 18 starts with this concept of understanding of the world or, or, or mentioning the world, I should say. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So what is the world? The world refers to this human system that opposes God's purpose. This, this reality that there is a, a, a system in place that opposes the purposes of God. In fact, you're following your note guide. The answer is the, the, the human system that opposes God's purpose. It, it, it reminds me specifically of those cartoons I used to watch sometimes on, on Saturday morning where there was this little bird and this coyote, and they were always at odds, right? And the coyote was always trying to get the, the roadrunner, and the roadrunner would have all these ways in which it would get out of the, whatever traps were set or whatever happened. And for whatever reason, the coyote could never get ahead. The coyote could never win. It was like this system was set up where he was never going to win. Perhaps you have felt like you, in some ways, are the coyote, not necessarily trying to find your dinner, but specifically in this world where it seems like whatever you try to do, whatever efforts you have, whatever way you try to move forward, and whatever you try to, to, to cast behind that, that might be not of say, whatever you do, it seems like you're always foiled. It seems like you're always uh, in, in the midst of, of experiencing some sort of opposition, some sort of pushback, some sort of, uh, of, of, of really, in a lot of ways, some sort of force to which you can't ex totally experience or understand. Let me just say that this world's opposition to the gospel isn't necessarily because of something that's set up within the context of, of human origin or understanding. Instead, it is done, it is carried out as a response to the, 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 the demonic presence and the spiritual warfare that takes place every day in our world. Get this, Satan uses this world and the system therein that we live in as a way to try to oppress the gospel, to oppress believers, to try to tear us down. And what Christ is saying right here is, look, I know and you know that there is an evil one that is out to try to destroy and therefore he uses the world in, 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 in what we see. He uses the structure of this world to try to tear us down, to destroy us, to deceive us. 
Continuing on in verse 19, it says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And if you were just to read that, you might think, wow, that's, that's kind of nice, right? There's this love that comes, and, and specifically the word love there is not the, the word agape, but instead it's another kind of word. It's a superficial type of love. It says, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So what Jesus is saying is because you are not part of the world, part of this fabric, part of this oppressed people, part of this oppressed spiritually people, you will not be loved by them. In fact, you do not belong. The believer's essential being, his or her new life comes separately and specifically from God, and therefore he is not the same as those who oppose God. You and I, if we give our heart, if we believe in Christ, if we follow after him, our life, the fabric of who we are, will be opposed by the world because of those who do oppose God. But it's interesting here that the word hate is even used. Hate, this, this word hate is a strong word. I don't often use the word hate. In fact, if, even if I hear my kids or someone else use the word hate, I, I talk through that, that concept with them, the fact that how, how powerful this is. The, 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 the English dictionary uh, defines hate as feel intense or passionate dislike for someone or something. And I think that even somewhat falls short, specifically I know to this text, but also in the context of how we believe it in this country, or in this world, or, or, or even in the context of our culture. Hate is, is the opposition. Hate is the, is the complete desire for destruction of the opposing force, the opposing side, the opposing thing that we dislike passionately or intensely. Hate also requires and, and involves action rather than simply words. But why do they hate us? Or why is there hate from the world towards those who follow God? Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. People don't hate believers because of the fact that they're believers. They, they hate them because of the fact that they hate God. You know, I, I heard a comedian once talk specifically about how if you're a, a sports fan, particularly professional sports, that you're essentially cheering for laundry, right? Anybody ever heard this concept before? If you're a sports fan, say you like uh, the, the uh, I'll just say the Browns, right? I don't want to say the Bengals because some of you might say, well, I, I like Joe Burrow. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll use that. That's, that is a, um, that's a, a, a exception to the rule. But if you like the Browns, typically, typically you will cheer for whoever is wearing the Browns jersey, Right? I know this for sure because if you're also an Ohio State fan and you like the Browns, you cheered for Baker Mayfield for three years after he planted a field or a, a flag in the middle of Ohio Stadium, right? It was like, oh, I, I can't stand this guy. Oh, he's wearing a Browns jersey? Yeah, go, go Baker, right? I didn't hear it, but I'm sure it was against me. No way. No. Oh, I heard the no way. All right. I didn't cheer for him either, just so you know. But in any event, we, we, we cheer specifically for our team, specifically for the laundry. And sometimes there'll be a, a connection with a player. You might like something they do off the field, or you might relate well to them. But in most cases, it's specifically for 
the laundry. And the same way is true for the world, and, and to some extent, the world uh, basically having opposition towards the believer. It's not necessarily you, but it's the one who lives within you. It's, it's that spirit, the Holy Spirit, the God who created you, who brings forth and illuminates everything, including, which is the, the biggest reason, including sin. Get this, the goodness of the world uh, put against the backdrop, uh, the goodness of God put against the backdrop of the darkness of the world is what really brings forth the conviction and brings forth this desire for and this, this aim at hate for the believer. And at the same time, this hate turns into persecution. In fact, the answer to that specific second question is this. The, the reason that the, the Christian should expect persecution through the context of hate is that we belong to God. That's the only reason. The only reason that we should expect that is because we, so to speak, wear the jersey. We are the jersey with, with God living and dwelling within. The world's uh, master is, is Satan. And, and, and basically, in context, the, the, the reality of the world's uh, God is that they, 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 they worship the created, not the creator. They may, they may not be specifically your neighbor or somebody else who's, who's, who's not a believer in Jesus, or maybe he's a, in a pre-Christian fashion. They're not necessarily worshiping Satan. In most cases, they're simply worshiping something of this created world. And the reality is when that comes against the backdrop, once again, of a holy God, there's this disconnect, there's this, there's this, this, con, this, this conflict within them, and that at the same time, that brings forth this frustration, this angst, and eventually this hate, which leads to persecution. I must eliminate the, the, the vessel or the branch to which brings this hurt or pain or conflict within. As the verse continues, I'll jump down, the passage continues, I'll jump down to verse 21. It says, they will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. You know, this, this, this is interesting. Sometimes, and maybe you've been guilty of this before, sometimes we break a law or break a rule, not because we intentionally wanted to, but because we didn't know that it was a law or a rule. But what takes place in many cases after you've broken that law or broken that rule is once it comes to your attention, there's a sense of guilt or a desire to want to right or rectify the situation. The reality is what, what Christ is saying here is once somebody knows, hears the truth, then what can happen is, is something sets in called this conviction thing. And the question is, why does the world hate Christianity? The answer is, in short, Conviction. Conviction. They don't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to be told they're in the wrong. They like the life they're in or they're fine. They're content with the life they're in. And therefore, the world does not want to experience conviction or to be told they have to change or to do something or to step away from something that they're involved in. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because Christians do not belong to the world. Persecution from the world is inevitable. We're aliens in this world. We, we are here specifically for a time. Our home, though, is in heaven. The basic reason for the world's ignorance and, and rejection specifically is because they don't know the Father. 
Jesus says that. They don't know the Father. They don't understand him. They don't understand who he is. Not that they don't, they don't know who the Father is, uh, this, this person that's out there, but they don't know him personally. They haven't experienced his, his justice and love all in one through the person of Jesus. This comes by, by many names, Christianity or holiness or the light of God shining brightly uh, on the sins of the world, whatever it might be. This is how one comes to know or to experience or to understand Jesus and understand and experience conviction. <clears throat> no one necessarily, no one has a problem with you as a believer until, they ex- until you experience success. Get this for a moment. <clears throat> when someone is maybe addicted to uh, a drug or maybe addicted to alcohol, the friends that they have, typically uh, when, they, when, when, when someone might be in this type of circle, they would be surrounded by people who have the same interests, the same addiction, or the same desires. But the reality is when somebody is, is stricken with, uh, with, with God's love and affection and they step out of that because they have, been, they have been relieved and they have been brought out because of God's transformational power, what typically takes place is there's a desire on the part of those who are still in that environment to begin to throw stones, to begin to try to pull them down, to begin to try to tear them up or, or make them believe something other than what they want. And the reason for that is not because, hey, we're, we're necessarily losing a friend because in essence, in a lot of cases, they're not really friends. It's just a, a, a mutual, uh, um, I should say, a mutual situation where they're tearing each other down. But instead, what it typically is, is, hey, Because you have stepped forward in what God has for you that shines light on my sin, and I therefore feel conviction. I therefore feel conviction because of what's happened. And and this is true even in in believers. Maybe you've been a believer your whole life, and you see someone else taking huge steps forward in faith. You're like, you know what? It's been a while since I've had, you know, a a big paradigm shift, or since I've felt this, or I've experienced this, and maybe even a little bit of jealousy might creep in. Why is God speaking to them and I don't get to hear? Why is God showing them this new thing in life and, and I don't get to experience that? And there's a conviction there where God says, I'm trying to bring you along, but there's things you're holding on to or there's things that you're doing or there's this lifestyle that you choose to live or there's this, 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 maybe this one stronghold that's still in your pocket that you're not willing to give me. And that conviction begins to set in even in the believer. This concept is, is interesting, and I'm just going to touch on it for just a moment. No one wants to be told that they're a sinner, or no sinner wants to be told that they are sinning, right? But let's talk about sin for a moment. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. It's, it, it can be willful and intentional. Sometimes it's just a, a, a lack of stepping forward. Sometimes it's not doing what God might want them to do. And, and here are some things you might hear. You tell someone, a, a, maybe a brother or sister in Christ, hey, here's an area in your life that I see a shortcoming. Sometimes you might get called judgmental, right? Anybody ever been called judgmental before? Well, you're just judging me. Three of us have been called judgmental before. <laughs> Maybe you hear, well, you aren't perfect. And that can be one of the, the worst lies of Satan. Well, when you have it all together, then you can share with somebody else that they have an issue in their life. And you, you begin to second guess or even to doubt the fact that you are worthy enough to bring an issue to somebody else. What if they bring up that one passage? Do I have a plank in my own eye or not? And Satan then has talked you out of going to your brother or sister and bringing something to their attention that can help them to grow spiritually in their own life because you didn't want to be called judgmental or you didn't want to be told that you had a sin in your life or you thought, hey, I'm not worthy enough to do it. 
Maybe you've gotten the mind your own business. Well, I don't want to sever that relationship with a friend or a family member because if I tell them here's an issue that's going on in their life, they're probably going to say, you know what? I've had enough of you. You think you're holier than thou. We're not friends anymore. You know what? That's it. We're, we, we've had enough. Or here's, here's an interesting one. This is, this is, perhaps you've experienced this before too. Sometimes you might tell someone, hey, here's, here's something that I see. God has brought this to my attention. I love you. We're brothers or sisters in Christ, whatever it might be in your context. And, and I want to tell you this thing. And what happens is they take it gracefully or they listen. They say, okay, thank you for sharing that. But as soon as you, quote, mess up, they're the first ones there to say, hey, just so you know, I see that. I know that. And I'll tell you, part of that isn't necessarily even Christian's fault. Part of that is, is, the, is the reality that we experience that from, from the opposition that we have in this world. Hollywood has painted this for, for years and years and years. In fact, my uncle's a pastor, and he used to preach on this concept uh, from time to time uh, called the preacher will fail. And basically what he would say is any television show, any movie you watch, anything you see, and there's maybe one or two that I would say is the exception of the rule, but anything you watch, the preacher or the pastor or the priest always messes up when Hollywood's writing the story. And what that does is it sows a, a, a level of doubt, a level of concern, a, a, maybe a level of distrust in the life of anybody out there for any believer that might have anything to say to them. Well, you don't have it together. I don't know anybody who does. What I will say is those that are following after Christ, those that are stepping forward in him, are going to be given the opportunity to feel conviction as we step forward in our relationship with Jesus. The more you get to know Christ, the more you understand him, the more you step forward in faith, the more you will feel conviction because he's going to expose things to you that he says, hey, I would like that. You're holding this back. You're holding back this relationship or or maybe this pride issue. Maybe you're holding back a, a, a possession. And God says, I want you to turn that over to me. And that conviction comes in the sense of, of getting closer to God, understanding God in a very real way. One of the most discouraging and encouraging words or phrases is is shared here in verse 22. It says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. No excuse for their sin. You know, we are are privileged and and, uh, blessed to be able to have the gospel. To be able to have this, this book, to be able to come to a place and be able to worship or to tune in on, on, on live stream, to be able to, to engage with other believers, to be able to see how God is moving and changing and working. We have the blessing of the gospel right before us. But the reality is we also have this thing called, the, the, uh, the, the, which is main across the board, we have this thing called no excuse, which means that God is saying, you have this. You have the truth. There's no excuse not to respond to it. When the gospel's been shared and and, and no response is taken, that's when conviction uh, moves in. That's when conviction is felt. And here's the problem in a postmodern world. Sometimes conviction can be wished away or can be pushed away because of this thing in this postmodern world called no absolute truth. And I'm just going to take a moment just to talk a little bit about this thing called no absolute truth. We live in a society that has a sliding scale as it would pertain to morality, right? The world as we see it and whatever they choose, this compass that they have only points true north in the place where conviction ends. 
And what, by, what I mean by that is this. When, when you or I have a conversation with someone else, we talk to somebody, particularly someone who may not be a believer, and we discuss with them where their moral compass is, it's going to have a sliding scale based upon what they believe to be good and what they believe to be bad. Because what I believe to be good and what you believe to be good could be two different things. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, uh, the, the postmodern mindset. That's the, that's the idea, the concept of, of what it means to not have an absolute truth. But the reality is, if we all have a differing perspective of what it means to be good or what a good thing is, none of us have to feel conviction. And so the world's real mission, this structure of the world that we're talking about, real mission isn't necessarily to say, okay, here's sin, let's live in it, but instead, let's redefine sin. Let's say this is okay and this is not. Let's celebrate this and we'll, we'll, we'll take a few things from Scripture. That way it has the appearance of being good and we'll use that. But at the same time, we're going to use this over here. If you were to walk through any issue, any specific political or, or any issue in our, in our culture, you're going to find differing perspectives from different people on what's good and what's not. And specifically, when they finally get to a place, okay, this is sin. I've chosen that to be sin. That becomes their truth. I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter unless it lines up with the Holy Scripture. And so sometimes conviction gets lost because truth is lost. And let me tell you right now, as believers, as light bearers, as those who steward the word, and just a moment ago, as I talked about this reality of when we have this, we become guilty when we don't follow it. If we as the light bearers don't share the light, share the truth, even in the midst of maybe that person's going to get mad, or maybe that person's going to judge me, or that person's going to be right there when I say something wrong and I do something wrong, and they're going to tell me. So let me just tell you, we need to be the light in the world. Because no one else is going to do it. Nothing else is going to do it. So how do we reconcile this? How do, we, how do we reconcile the place where we are? And if you were wondering, hey, Pastor Steve, are we going to talk about this triumphal entry thing yet? Yeah, here we go. This is, this is it right here. We, we go elsewhere to discover this specific concept of what it means to reconcile the truth that God has just shared through the person of Jesus with a triumphal entry. In Matthew chapter 21, Starting in verse 6, it reads like this. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. A lot to learn through that as well. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while other branch, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of, them, of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And verse 11 says, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's interesting to look here at this, this passage, and, and, and there's a lot to learn from it. There's these crowds that are piling in. And the reason that Matthew used, uses this plural crowds is because there's actually a crowd that is, that is coming with Jesus, that's following Jesus, that's already been with Jesus. They're, they're there, and, and they're, 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 they're carrying the torch. In a lot of ways, I would consider that the church, those that know him, those that are following him, his disciples, and, and others that said, hey, I want to be part of this movement, part of this way. I understand this God. And then there's this other crowd that's already there in Jerusalem that they're hungry for the truth. 
They're hungry to welcome in this Jesus who's coming, who they may not know everything about. They don't know all the things that he's taught. They don't know, but they've caught a glimpse of his love and his grace through the people who have filtered that information to them. And at this point, they are willing and ready to receive him in. They lay down their cloaks. The, the, the very shirt off their back, they lay it before a donkey to trot across. They take leaves from the, from the trees. The, these trees would, would have been partially their life source in a lot of ways. They would have given them shade and rest. And they take them and they, and they cut them down, not haphazardly, but sacrificially. And they lay them before the king as he comes into their city. They shout, Hosanna. A foreign word really for us, but it means an expression of adoration, of praise and joy, and to say it in the heavenly highest, basically saying this is the the greatest thing, the greatest praise that we can express for the God of all, Hosanna. When Jesus entered here in, in verse 10 and 11, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Josh McDowell wrote a book, among others, that's it's called Evidence that, that Demands a Verdict. And basically, they have been given the truth. They're, they're receiving, they're saying, who is this? And it demands a verdict. And that same thing is true, not just in that day when, when, when Jesus came into that place, but it's true today for you and for me. What are we going to do with it? Where are we going to go from here? The response is this, I am has entered. You might remember the last couple of weeks we've talked about this I am and that language that Jesus has used, but I am the God of all, the God of the universe, the, the, the one who has created all and the one who has come to rectify all has entered the city. I'd venture to say that that entry is so powerful, it's almost as powerful or, or maybe, maybe more of the entry of Jesus coming into and his birth coming into the world. This entry carries with it a symbolic metaphor for spiritual entry into one's life as well. What an amazing thought it is that Jesus chose to enter our neighborhood, to enter our home, to enter our life. We didn't have to go off and try to find him in some distant land or, or make some pilgrimage off in the middle of nowhere, but instead Jesus chose to come to us, to come to you, to come to me. The amazing thing is at the same time as we kind of look through this, I'm just going to touch on it for a moment and I'll express it a little bit more next week. Not only did Jesus uh, through the course of Holy Week uh, die and raise again, but a few, uh, a few days later, he, depending upon which gospel you read, a few days later, later he rose, he ascended into heaven. And from that, he didn't say, okay, see you later, good luck, but he sent another, a counselor. In verse 26, I will send a, a counselor, probably referring to the Father sending the Holy Spirit in this case, I will send a counselor to come and to be with with you once again offering hope for us. The Holy Spirit ministers both to the head and to the heart. Both dimensions are important here. Uh, specifically in his last days, Jesus warns us about the furthering persecution that's going to come. He told them where, when, and why he was going and what was going to take place and finally assured them that they would not be left alone. That should be, I, I, honestly, to, to me, that, that, that is a, an amazing outpouring. That is an amazing response. That is, that is a, an amazing key principle to the reality of what it, what it looks like to follow God. He doesn't leave us alone. And you can look at that two ways. One of them you can look at it and say, he doesn't, he won't leave me alone. He keeps convicting me. He keeps bringing up these things. But on the other end, he doesn't leave us alone because he loves us. 
and he's present with us. And when we walk through the trials, whatever it might be, getting thrown off the stage or hit with a dodgeball, whatever it might be in your life right now, whatever trial you're walking through, you don't do it alone. God wants you to know that you're not alone. He wants you to know that he's here. The Holy Spirit is here to comfort you, to teach you, to to bring you truth and to help you. So we're going to conclude in just a moment with a prayer. And and I want to just kind of look at it from a, a few different contexts. God wants to enter the city of your heart. The question this morning as we look at the triumphal entry is, what will you do with that? Perhaps now as as a pre-Christian, you're in the room, you're joining online, you don't know Jesus, you're still exploring, you still want to know what this is all about. Maybe today is the moment to which you say, you know what, I, 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 I don't know everything about God, I don't know everything about the Bible, what I do know is I want to know more. I've experienced conviction, I want to know him, I want to experience his grace and his love and his provision. And this Holy Week, I want this to be a moment to which is a launch pad for my understanding and my love of Jesus. Maybe you're in a place where it's a post-conversion, right? You're a believer, but you you, you basically are holding onto a fire insurance card. Like, okay, I'm a believer, but I don't wanna wanna do anything else. When God convicts me, I'm just gonna kinda say, yeah, not right now or not yet. Or maybe God's saying, hey, I want more of you. And and, and this sanctification thing is becoming more like God is not necessarily what you're into. Maybe, Maybe this is the moment where you say, God, you know what, I want more of you. And I realize the way that I get more of you is when I give more of me. And so maybe today is the day when you you lay it down. You say, God, take all. Take everything that I am. Maybe you're in a place where, this is what I would consider maybe like a storm watcher. Right? You're in a constant state of, of storms that are consuming you all the time. Satan is throwing trials at you every single day. Maybe you're experiencing hate or persecution because of your faith. Or maybe you're just walking through a a desert right now and the storms are brewing and and that's got you consumed all the time. You're focused on the storm ahead of you like the disciples were in the boat rather than the person who's literally in the boat with you, which is Jesus. Maybe today you're gripped with pride or something that's got a hold of you. Something that you're saying, hey, this is more important. This is something that I'm subscribed. This is something that I understand, so I'm going to hold on to it. Or maybe right now you're you're in this unsearchable mode. Oh, God. Maybe the, 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 the posture is this. Oh, God, I want you to search me. You're in a place where you've been unsearchable in the past. God, you can't come in. This is, you know, I, I follow you. I love you. I know you, but this is my bubble. And I want you, maybe today is the day where you say, God, search me. What I do know about this Sunday in a lot of ways is that it is an on-ramp. It is a welcome map. It is a launching towards the celebration next week. And sometimes we miss out on the celebration because of lack of preparation. Let's prepare today. Let's prepare our hearts for whatever way and in whatever way God is entering into the city of our lives this morning. Wherever you are, maybe it's something I mentioned or maybe it's something that you're holding on to. This is the Spirit speaking to me right now. Maybe that's it today. But today, as we conclude this service together, corporately in this place and joining wherever we might be online, this, this day, this morning, this moment, may we enter into Holy Week by allowing God to enter into us. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. 
Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless. God bless.